Well, good morning, church. Open with me to 1 Peter chapter 5. We'll be in verse 5 this morning. So 1 Peter 5, 5. As we turn there, let's pray. And I think something that we, we do that I, I don't want to go unexplained is that we, we pray a lot during our services. We talk to God in a, a particular and specified way. There's a reason for it. There's a reason why we open our service in prayer. There's a reason why we close our service in prayer. There's a reason why we open our sermon in prayer, and there's a reason why we close our sermon in prayer. And historically, the prayer prior to a sermon is called a prayer of illumination. And the reason for that is we are wholly dependent upon the Holy Spirit to guide us through what we're about to look at. My eloquence or lack thereof is only to the side of the primary means of us understanding the text, and that is the Holy Spirit. And so although he is present with us, we, and although he is renewing our minds, it behooves us to, to remind ourselves of that, and so often that is the purpose of prayer. We are asking God to do something that he has promised he will do, and in doing that, we are demonstrating our faith and our obedience. So with that said, let's pray as we begin our sermon this morning. Lord, you are good in that you have given us your word. As Joe explained this morning in our catechism, you define who you are. You don't make us do that, you don't let us do that, and you don't expect us to do that. It is not our wisdom, and it certainly isn't our cleverly designed fables that we come up with to determine who the creator and the sovereign of the universe and the guarantor and accomplisher of our salvation is. Lord, you are everything that we need, and you have given us everything that we need. We come to this by your Spirit, through your Word, and you allow us to do this through the gift of faith. We thank you for the grace that accomplishes all these things. It's in the precious name of your Son we pray. Amen. 1 Peter 5.5 says, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. You who are younger, be subject to the elders. Our culture is in an interesting place. I'm sure I could get an amen if we were the kind of church that does that sort of thing, to the statement that our church is in, or excuse me, our culture is in an interesting place. And one of the things that we deal with in our culture, in our time, is the fact that the respect of elders, that modern culture has forsaken this. They've forsaken the wisdom that accompanies age and the, and the information that comes with the wisdom that accompanies age for convenience. So when was the last time you had a question and you went to an older person for the answer. The fact of the matter is is that we don't do that very frequently because 
we have everything we need and more in this little black rectangle that lives in our pocket. What does my neighbor, who's been around the block more times than I have, have that this doesn't have? What does my grandpa have that this doesn't have? What do older people in our church have that have real-life experiences have that this doesn't have? And unfortunately, this mindset is in the church, and it is certainly a mindset that exists out in the world. Google has replaced grandpa nine times out of ten. Some of this has to do with the convenience that comes with it. Some of this has to do with the fact that there's no strings attached, perceivably, with when you Google something. And you don't have to have a conversation. You don't have to sit down. You don't have, Google doesn't ask you, ask you why you're doing this, or how's that nice girl you've been seeing. That is not something that Google asks of you that grandpa might ask of you. But it's also the convenience and the lack of intimacy, and the lack of relationship. And so our culture has forsaken the wisdom that accompanies, often accompanies age, for the information and the convenience that accompanies easily accessing the questions that we have. But that's not right. That's not normal. And I think we would all agree that that's not healthy. That rote information, that brute facts, are not how we are supposed to learn. But there's more that comes of it. Because Google cannot minister to your heart. Google cannot give you what you need that really transcends information. Our lives are not equations that simply need answers plugged into them. But we are part of a community, part of a covenant community in Christ that draws us together. And the information that we seek the knowledge that we need, even the leadership that we, we require is not something that is done through a sequence of ones and zeros, but it's done through cups of coffee and it's done through late nights sat next to each other in rocking chairs. That is how we are meant to learn and how we are meant to grow. And so even though we struggle with it in a particular way in 2023 in Western civilization, this is something that everyone has had to deal with. And so consequently, the Apostle Peter commands his, his audience, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Now, a few things that are, are kind of, uh, that preface our, our conversation this morning as we look at this text. Notice how it actually starts. It starts, likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. And it, or your translation may say, you who are younger, Likewise, be subject to your elders. This is on the heels of what we talked about last week as there was specific exhortation directed to the elders of the church. And so there is the, the expectation that the elders of a church behave a certain way, act a certain way, do things in a certain way, and now we switch to those who are younger. Now, we run into a little bit of a conundrum. Because the first four verses of chapter 5 are talking about the title, elder, given to those who are in a church. But one of the things that is interesting, when we run into verse 5, it says, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. And in the interpretive kind of community is split. Is this continuing to talk about 
those who are elders if from a title perspective, the formal elders of a church, or is this talking about elders, those who are at a stage of life? So to understand, we kind of have this split, this division between uh, those who interpret First uh, Peter 5.5. 5. Is the command here that younger men, or sometimes you who are younger, does it talk about respecting and honoring those who have the title or those who have the age? And the answer is yes. The context allows for both. The context allows for both. On one, one hand, the context leads one to believe that it's talking about um, the younger men talk, respecting the older men. On the other hand, there is the continued context of it talking about, those, about younger men being specifically subject to the elders of a church. But what we have to acknowledge is that both of these things, being respectful or submitting to elders, the title, elders of a church, and elders, those who have lived longer than you, are both applications of the same biblical principle. So one more time, respecting the elders of a church and respecting your elders, those who are older than you, who are more spiritually mature than you even, are both applications of the same biblical principle. And for 2,000 years, the church has understood that, that both of these applications, respecting those who have maybe some gray hair and maybe have some more wrinkles, which Scripture says is beautiful. It actually says, you shall rise up before the gray-haired and honor the aged. And God actually tacks onto that, and you shall feel your God, I am Yahweh. So God actually says, you should respect the, the gray-haired because... I'm God. How do we tie that together? Well, God says, that's all you need to know, at least in that, in that context from that verse in Leviticus. But they're, both of these things, respecting the aged and respecting the formal title of elder, are rooted in the fifth commandment. Like I said, this is something the church understood and taught for 2,000 years. It was explained in the early church, and it was explained in the time of the Reformation, the Puritans rooted their, so much of their teaching in this principle, and we are going to stand on it also. So the fifth commandment, the fifth commandment is the commandment to honor your father and mother, that your days may be long in the, in the, in the land, and the Lord, that the, uh, your God, is giving you. So these two principles of respecting your elders, kind of capital E, church title elders, and respecting your elders, those who are older than you, both of these are rooted in this commandment, to honor your father and mother. Now, you might say, but my mother is not elderly. You may say, my mother is not older, and many of you mothers are not. I'll say, how about all of you mothers are not? We are on the cusp of Mother's Day, so we'll make sure we're being very gentle in the way we speak about these things. You may say, my father is getting up there, a little long on the tooth, as it were, but he certainly isn't elderly, and nor is he an elder in the church. So how does honor your father and mother turn into respect your elders and obey your church elders? Well, if we consider that there is a kind of a hierarchy of how we understand God's commands, this becomes clear. Christ himself, when asked, what is the foremost commandment? He boils everything down. 
the entirety of the revelation of God to his people, he boils it down to one main principle. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then he tacks on, lest anyone have any point of confusion in his original audience and for us today, and the second is like this. Love the neighbor at your neighbor as yourself. And what he's doing there is actually illustrating this principle that all of the laws, everything, as you know, we're going through numbers, we had just went through Leviticus, we're going to see Deuteronomy in a couple of weeks, all of these sundry and various laws that has to do with things that are very clear to us, don't kidnap, don't murder, you know, don't do things like that, and things that may be a little bit more obscure, don't eat turkey vultures, for example. There's actually a conversation this morning in this room about eating turkey vultures, rooted in Scripture. You know, make sure you dress a certain way if you're a priest. Things that may seem more obscure. All of those things were given to us so that we would know how to love God. Because tying this all back together to what Joe mentioned this morning, God has revealed himself to us. He has explained who he is and how he wants to be worshipped. We don't have to come up with that on our own. And so by Christ responding, what the foremost commanded is, by saying, love the Lord your God with all your heart, he is showing that all of the obedience to all of the commandments go back to him. And then, of course, he expands upon that by saying, love your neighbor as yourself. And then you could say there's another set of laws that we find in the Ten Commandments, starting with, you know, worship me only, and going all the way through the other Ten Commandments, ending with don't coveting. And then you could make the argument, and many, many theologians throughout church history have said that everything else, all of those various and sundry laws that appear as moral and civil and cultic laws, all of those things are the explanation or the exposition of the Ten Commandments. So again, we kind of have this pyramid. We have love the Lord your God and love your neighbor also. Then we have the Ten Commandments, and then everything else you could kind of find a funnel that would go up to one of the Ten Commandments. Now, there's much that's written about this, and there's some times where I think that there's artificial shoehorning of some commands into the Ten Commandments. But I think but something that the church has been very clear on for 2,000 years is that when we understand submitting to authority, whatever that authority may be, that that goes right back to the fact that God has given us fathers and God has given us mothers. And for many of us, for most of us, we have the privilege and the benefit of that being our biological or adoptive father and mother. But even in that, we see that there's other circumstances where it might deviate a little bit. And there are some of us who did not have the privilege, did not have the benefit of having a father figure, or a mother figure in our lives, let alone one that honors Christ. And because of that, he gives us mothers and fathers in the church, lowercase f fathers, not the kind of father that perhaps the Catholic church would, would, uh, would foist upon us. But beyond that, we have fathers in our communities. We have community fathers, men and women who stand up and take that role in overseeing things. And certainly, we see that throughout all sections of life. And so, going back to, and I know that we're, we're, we're hammering this point because what I want to be very clear for us is that when we see you who are younger be subject to the elders, 
that this does have a broad application beyond the very focused application of saying, well, I'm 55, I have to respect those that are 56 and over, and 54 and younger, they have to respect me. It's not that simple. It, there's a lot more to it, and we're actually getting wonderful principles here from this concise verse in 1 Peter 5 that can help us understand our role as we are subject to others and how we are fathers and mothers to those who are younger than us. So real quick, just to, to hammer this point one more time, something that we see in the, the Westminster Longer Catechism. So we've been going through the New City Catechism. We've touched on the Heidelberg Catechism. We've used some of the other historic church catechisms before. But one of the things that I really appreciate about the Westminster Longer Catechism, if you have some free time in this beautiful afternoon, you can pull it up on your phone or you can get your hardback copy off your bookshelf and spend some time in it. But what happens is that the Westminster Assembly, these divines, these theologians from the 17th century, they went through all 10 commandments and they didn't just give a question and answer. What's the, what's the fourth commandment? Honor the Sabbath and keep it holy. But they take that commandment and they say, what does the Sabbath allow and what does this Sabbath prohibit? And they show how there's a greater application to this, that it's not as simple as honor the Sabbath. Well, what does that mean? The same thing they do for the fifth commandment. And so what they do in their 127th question is they say, what is the honor that inferiors owe to their superiors? And they go through and they exegete and they pull out principles from Scripture that reflect honoring your father and mother. And again, it may very well be your biological father and mother that you say yes, mom, and yes, dad, to, Or they may be someone else who is in that role. So real quickly, it's a whole paragraph. I'll only read a few things. It says, the honor which inferiors owe to their superiors is all due reverence in heart, word, and behavior, prayer and thanksgiving for them, imitation of their virtues and graces, willing obedience to their lawful commands and counsels, due submission to their corrections, fidelity to defense and maintenance of their persons and authority according to their several ranks and the nature of their places. This is important bearing with their infirmities and covering them in love so that they may be an honor to them and to their government. And we have to remember that this was written in a time when authority was being challenged. The 17th century England, there was civil wars happening within three countries that had sent their people to the Westminster Assembly. England and Scotland and Ireland were all having civil wars that had political and ethnic things going on. The churches were all splitting in every one of these countries, but the divines, these theologians, saw, thought it's so important to emphasize the fact that even though there is disagreement, lively, sometimes fisticuff-level disagreement, that we need to maintain that the honor and respect that we show our authorities is rooted in the fact that we understand that all authorities have been placed by God. And so when we are confronted with a verse that says, you younger men, you who are younger, be subject to the elders, this is not something that we can think of flippantly when we don't like what our local governor has said. This is not something that we can think through in a very kind of rote manner when we, our father has walked away from the faith and so we can complete, completely disregard him because we can find a loophole. 
both what I just read from the Westminster Longer Catechism and what Scripture makes very, very clear is that challenging authority is a human condition that goes back to the fall. But we are called to respect and honor our elders. We are called to honor those who the Lord has put in a position before us and above us. That may be a church elder, as we talked about last week, or it may be somebody who has lived longer than us, father and uncle, a grandfather, an older man or an older woman in our church. So we know who our superiors are. And really, in one sense, it's everyone who has a position or a rank or a status that is above us. And again, we, and we'll acknowledge here in a second that, that when we say that, it doesn't mean that there is two levels of salvation. It doesn't mean that, that God has a VIP lounge and the rest of us are outside of it if we don't have a, a title in front of our names. It just means that we acknowledge that just as within the Trinity there is a, a role that the Son takes and a role that the Father takes, and it's very, very cumbersome language, and I want to be careful when I say that, that there is equality within the Trinity. There's equality within the church. We hold firm to the concept that in Christ there is neither Greek nor Jew, male nor female, but we also acknowledge that within those categories, particularly male and female, another example, slave and master, that there is equality in Christ, but there's also difference in role. So we are called to be subject to our elders. So we, we kind of have figured out who our elders are, and I'm going to kind of take the track of it being those who are older than us in, in, as we look through this text. And honestly, if I were to say, what do I think 1 Peter 5, 5 is primarily talking about? I think 1 Peter 5, 5 is primarily talking about those who are younger of age be subject to those who are older of age. I think that's the primary interpretation of this text. But as I said before, that doesn't mean we don't respect church elders. That's been emphasized in the first four verses. And it doesn't, and it means that maybe if somebody is more uh, mature in their faith, there is to be respect that is shown there. But all that is said to be said, what, how are we supposed to be subject to someone? I think that the Westminster Longer Catechism made some very good points in talking about sometimes it means that we bear with their infirmities. It means that we cover them in love. Even if we disagree with something, we acknowledge that they have a status and a, a, um, a stage of life that God has given us to honor them in. It means that we submit and accept their authority knowing that it comes from God's design for creation and his will for our lives. I had the benefit of, of changing up my weekly routine this week and um, because uh, Jason was in town and I wanted to touch base with him as well as check in on the Mangum small group, making sure there wasn't any rank heresy being propagated outside of my watchful eye. I stopped in on Wednesday night and had a good time of uh, Netu leading music for the kids and uh, having Joe lead a, a children's message and then sitting and, and uh, having a discussion of the sermon that Joe and I were super comfortable with because it was talking about how you should sub submit to your elders. And then one of the things that Joe did is he showed a short video clip and it talked about the idea of the church covenant community being completely different than how our culture 
organizes themselves. Our culture, Western culture, some of the American ideal even, sees us as a collection of individuals. It sees us as a bunch of individual people doing their best to be individuals together. Something that the church sees as very, very different, something that we see rooted in the very organization of Israel that has followed through into the church, is the fact that in God's covenant people, we have a structure. There are those who are called to be together as tight groups, the nuclear family, and then that group expands outward as we have cousins and uncles and grandparents that live in close proximity because of familial ties. I think that's one of the amazing blessings that we have in this church as I stand up here seeing how so many people in this room and and when we have more of our people in here, people are tied together by family bonds. It's a wonderful thing. It's a blessing. There's nothing wrong with it. It is not a detriment. It is actually a strengthening aspect of our church. It strengthens us who are actually more on a familial island to see and be with families that have they're connected by relational archipelagos and peninsulas and things like that. And this is God's covenant plan. This is God's covenant design that these tight cellular relationships of husband and wife and children and grandparents and brothers and sisters are making these connections. But within that, within that organism, within that structure, there has to be order and there has to be design, and there has to be function and and roles. And we see that given to us in God's word, applied through those who have authority and those who have experience. So how are we subject to our elders? Well, first of all, we have to be subject to them in the Lord as they fulfill their God-given mandates. So much of what is expected of those who are older is to pattern, live out who God is to those who are younger. As fathers, it ought to be a consistent burden to see ourselves as a picture of a heavenly father to our children. Not in any sort of saving way, but in providing and in protecting in an imperfect way how God protects and provides. Similarly, mothers are seen in a role where they are nurturing, and they are caring for, and they are doing so much that goes unseen, and unfortunately so much that goes unsaid in a way that God nurtures and organizes us and our families. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, there's so much that is, is demonstrated and explained by God to his Israel, to his family, his child, his chosen people, regarding how these structures are supposed to look. Deuteronomy chapter 4, it says, Keep yourself and keep your soul carefully, lest you forget the things your eyes have seen and they depart from you as you live the days of your life. Make them known to your sons and to your grandsons. This generational expectation for Israel is something that is given to us as men and by extension to all of us as something that is meant to be passed on. What we see from the Lord, what we hear from his word, the expectation is that is what we are supposed to pass on. 
One of the things that God has to deal with and straighten out as you go through Scripture, you see this explicitly. I think we actually just read it this morning in, in Isaiah, but we, you see it in Ezekiel and you see it in the Psalms. So often, fathers pass on bad things to their children, and God holds the fathers accountable for that. And if the children willingly engage in those things, now he, has, he holds the children accountable for those things. But at the same time, what we are called to do is be subject to our elders, whether it be father, grandfather, church elder, somebody in our community. We are subject to them in the Lord, in that function they've been given as being those who bear the sword, those who hold us together, and those who teach us in the things of the Lord as they're commanded to do. We're also to be subject to our elders in the Lord in light of their experience and wisdom. I started off this morning talking about how we are so quick to go to our smart smartphone. We're so quick to go to our bookshelf of Encyclopedia Britannica, for all of those who still have that. They'll probably become valuable again very, very soon when they crack down on information. But anyway, we, we go to that and we, we open it up and we try to find an answer as opposed to talking through somebody who maybe lived through that experience. We Google the Vietnam War as opposed to talking to a Vietnam War uh, veteran. We, we Google what, what something was like in the 1970s and 1980s instead of talking with somebody who lived through that. And we do that because of the ease and the convenience, but we miss out on the relational aspect and the personal aspect of something like that. Proverbs 23 says, Listen to your father who begat you, and do not despise your mother when she is old. Buy truth and do not sell it. Get wisdom and discipline and understanding. We can get online and we can get wisdom, but we can't get discipline. We can get online, but Wikipedia doesn't care if you get it or not. It can't answer your specific questions. The experience and wisdom and relationship that come with life are the things that flavor and the things that make information stick. It goes from information and it becomes wisdom. And we can receive that from those who have lived normal life experience, buying a car, getting married, getting a mortgage, refinancing a mortgage, going to church, working through a doctrinal question in a way that transcends what you can get from the internet. We buy truth and we don't sell it. We cling to it. It is something that we find that is precious, and we do that from those who are older than us. And of course, we do this through the lens of the word and our relationship to the Lord. We might actually receive advice from our elders that is terrible because it's ungodly, but that actually itself is illuminating in the sense that once we run it through the rubric and the grid of God's word and his Holy Spirit, that we're able to say this is the improper application of what we have been given. And now we can compare it and contrast it and say, lest I go that way, by God's grace, I will obey his word. And we don't do that in a scornful way. We don't do that in a mocking way. We don't do that to use them as pictures of incompetence or of sin, but we understand that that is what happens when someone does things their own way and not according to God's word. So we submit to our elders in the Lord. We submit to our elders in light of their experience and their wisdom. And thirdly, we submit to them in humility. 
And in fact, that is what the text goes on to say, talking about all of us clothing ourselves with humility towards one another. We'll talk about that in a second. But we submit to our elders, we are subject to them in humility. Again, knowing that they too are humans in need of grace. One of the jokes is, you know, when I get to a certain age, I can't wait to say anything without, you know, any repercussions. You know, I can say things and dress how I want. Um, there's a Jimmy Buffett song, song where he says, now that I'm old, I go anywhere. I don't brush my teeth. I don't comb my hair. And just because you're older doesn't mean it's okay. There's actually another line of that song. As I was saying it, I thought I would censor myself. Anyway. But it's this idea, when I'm old, it doesn't matter. No, it, it, it does matter. And so we remember that, they are, we, that anyone who is older than us is still a human in need of grace. We are, we, we are subject to them knowing that we might righteously disagree. We oftentimes have elders, particularly within the sphere of the civil magistrate, whether that be Chester, whether that be New Hampshire, and certainly, without question, our federal government, that we disagree with. But returning back to that application that we had of the fifth commandment, that these civil magistrates have been given to us by God for a reason. Sometimes it's for our good, but Scripture also is clear that sometimes it's for the judgment of our land. But that does not give us a reason to say, lock, stock, and barrel, I'm going to completely disregard their authority, disregard their status as elder. We might righteously disagree, but we do that in humility. And then thirdly, we, do, we, we are subject in humility knowing that we might have an anti-authoritarian bent. What do I mean by that? We might not like saying, yes, sir. We might not like saying, yes, ma'am. And again, that is a problem of the fall. We want to be independent. We want to be autonomous. The first fist we shake is often at our mother. And that is an, an illustration of the fist that we shake at a good, righteous, nurturing God. We have an anti-authoritarian bent. And we are often quick to point out the problems in the people that God has given us as our fathers and our grandfathers and our elders in our life. 1 Timothy chapter 1 says that we are not to rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters, in all purity. And this is how Peter treats the entire relationship how Peter treats the entire community, because that's kind of where we're going as we're wrapping up this book, talking out a group that is suffering, talking about a group that is experiencing difficulties as individual Christians, but also as a covenant community of Christians. The desire that Peter has for his people is that you get these things ironed out in your own household so that when difficulty comes, there's not already a rolling boil so that only a little bit of heat will cause the whole thing to spill over. If there is angst within your household, your individual house or in the household of faith, when that pressure is applied, if there's already so much going on, what will spill over will not be pretty for yourselves or for a watching world. 
And so consequently, if we take a position as a church where we disregard the wisdom that comes with age, if we take a position as a church where we, we disregard the, the wisdom that God has imbued into the familial relationships, and we say, we're just going to do what's latest, we're just going to do what's greatest. If you are one step behind, then sorry, you're going to get eaten. Then what we're going to do is we are inevitably not going to survive, and we're not going to thrive when things inevitably get more difficult. Because what God has given us, and what we see lived out in the life of our little church community is the beauty of intergenerational relationships, the beauty of family ties, the beauty of the older ministering to the younger. I don't row, but I, I run in Boston sometimes. And I run along the Charles River, and all those fancy universities have their boathouses there. And I wonder how much it costs to be on a rowing team for Harvard. But you, you have the, these boathouses, and they have these rowing teams. And I don't know one thing from another, so you can certainly come up and correct me afterwards. But if that's what you're most convicted about, then I want you to really take some time and think about what your priorities are. But one of the things that I've seen in, these, in this rowing is that there's, there's positions, different weights, different strengths, different, different uh, uh, giftings. They position themselves differently in the boat. The guy who can yell doesn't go in the front, he goes in the back. The people who are stronger are positioned in different places. This is even true when you put three people in a canoe. You put them in the right places so that the person who is able to steer can steer more efficiently. The person who is able to simply be the one who is powerful can make that go. And the one who's going to spend more time looking at birds and fish is in the middle where they're not going to get in trouble. Things need to be rightly ordered. Things need to be in the right position to stay afloat, let alone to move in the right direction with any sort of speed and purpose. The same thing is true in a family, in a church family, and ultimately in the world. And this disregard for elders is, is part of why we see our world in the situation that it's in. But I want to close with this, and again, that's an improper use of that terminology, which some of you are conditioned to... to Know that that means like two minutes left. We're not two minutes left. Third point, how about that? Notice the end of this text. What is said? So we, we see who our elders are, how are we to be subject to them, but then Peter says, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. For God opposes, opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Pride and humility so flavor all of our relationships. They so flavor all of our interactions. They so flavor our community. And I would say that it is essential for us to understand this because if we are known as a prideful community, a prideful covenant group of people, then that is not going to be attractive to a watching world. We can have the best coffee cake. We can have the best tea assortment. We can put on the best events, and no one will want to be a part of it. But if we are known as a humble community, a serving community, a community that respects elders in a way that is countercultural, then that is going to be attractive. We don't want to win people to that. We want to win people to Christ. But as we live out Christ-like lifestyles and Christ-like relationships in a way that is completely foreign and seems like something that it comes out of the 50s to so many of our culture that are watching, 
that will make them see that there's something different and spirit-led in us. Pride must be mortified. Humility must be elevated. Because humility, as authority figures, or before authority figures, often reflects our humility before God. And consequently, if we have pride as authority figures, and pride before authority figures, it often reflects our pride before God. What Peter quotes here is from Proverbs chapter 3, and there it says, Toward the scorners he is scornful, but to the humble he gives favor. It's interesting, Peter uses pride. He talks about what's actually at the root of scorn. The root of that critical, scornful spirit is pride. I know better than you. I don't care that you have a title. I don't care that you have an office. I don't care that you've lived 10, 20, 50 years more than me. I know better. The root of scorn is pride. We are to clothe ourselves with humility towards one another. This is essential, knowing that our elders, our authority figures, might have things wrong. And let me tell you, we do have things wrong, whether it's elder as a title or elder as an age, because we are all of us, to a man, sinners. But if we clothe ourselves with humility, if you focus on clothing yourself with humility, and I focus on clothing myself with humility, if there's an interpersonal problem, if there's strife, if there's some sort of thing that I say that's wrong or offensive, and I've clothed myself with humility and I'm willing to receive correction, and you've clothed yourself with humility and you're willing to offer up to a, an elder and a pastor a, 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 a concern, how much better is that going to go than if I'm defensive and you are offensive? That's going to be a problem. And one of the amazing things with this is that if we focus on ourselves, because I can't make you clothe yourself with humility, I can clothe myself with humility, that if I clothe myself with humility, I put humility on as if I'm getting dressed in the morning and, 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 and more than just in a beautiful 65-degree spring day, but I clothe myself with the humility as if it's going to be a blizzard and I have my gloves and my hat and my shirt and I'm completely covered in humility, that even if you do it wrong, I'm prepared to receive it right. Or, if you do it right and I do it wrong, you're prepared to deal with it in the right way. We clothe all of ourselves with humility, but focusing on what we can control ourselves, then we are putting ourselves in the best position. But again, hopefully, we're all in this business of clothing ourselves, all of us, with humility towards one another. And so the things that would normally, as we talked about a few weeks ago, wreck a church are opportunities to build up a church. Instead of the, the, the division and the factiousness and the, the murmuring and the gossip being a something that create, a, a, something that rots the floorboards out from underneath us, by clothing ourselves with humility, we actually see where those small fractures are and the beginnings of that deterioration are, but because we are anticipating and preparing for dealing with this in the right way, we can shore those things up and make it stronger. We have an opportunity, church, to live in a unique intergenerational community. But God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble, and so this must be the way that we go about it. There must be order, there must be humility to enjoy the blessings and the grace that come from where we are and who we are. 
And again, this is all rooted in something that we say so frequently. This is God's pattern. Tying it back together, back together we understand that our authority figures are manifestations of the fatherly and motherly roles that God has given every one of us in different situations. Going back to this, this pinnacle so, of, so often of, of, of God's commands to the children of Israel, in Deuteronomy, excuse me, Deuteronomy chapter 6, saying, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and all your might, and these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. Fathers, we teach our children well. Mothers, we teach our children well. Grandparents, we teach our grandchildren well. Those of you who have that role with someone in this room or someone in your life, but there's no biological connection, we teach our children well, following in this pattern that God has given us. And all of us are children in one way, shape, or form, whether it be to our biological parents or whether to be a father or mother in the faith. And we learn that well. We listen well, knowing that we are part of this great godly line of witnesses. We are not our own. We belong to God, and he has ordained that there be a structure of eldership, of submission, being younger, of being older, and every one of us works through these things in succession. So church, teach well. Listen well. Whoever you are, whatever your age, whatever your status might be, whatever your title is, diligently teach and diligently learn your entire life. Focused on God more than our title, more than our age, more than who's teaching us, more than who is learning from us. We do this on God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our might. Part of this, we get to live out physically, tangibly at this time in our service. The Lord has given us the beautiful image of a cup of juice and a cracker that we can take in our hands, that we can take in our mouth to teach us. This is what Jesus did while he was in the upper room with his disciples. He used an object lesson, what was inevitably a, a, a very uh, uh, simple and a very uh, meager version of some of the other Passover feasts that were going on in Jerusalem at that time among the Pharisees and the Sadducees. But what Christ did in that upper room by instituting the Last Supper transcended what was happening in those places because he himself was the completion of that Passover meal. He himself is what it had pointed to the whole time. And so just as, as uh, God, through Moses, instituted the Passover meal to teach and allow for those who are elders to, to uh, have authority and to pass something on to children and for the younger ones to learn, the Lord's Supper provides us with that opportunity today. We have an opportunity as we sit with our child and, and we, we sing and as we speak and as we share with what this wine represents and what this bread represents, we have an opportunity to give that same object lesson that Christ gave to his church. It's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful picture. It's a wonderful reminder for those of us who have taken this a hundred times or have taken this one time 
that this is something given to us by God. And so I'm going to invite John to come up to lead us in our last song. And we're going to, uh, as, as he leads us in, in music, we're going to come up and receive the, the wine and the juice and the cracker. And we're going to take it back to our seats. But let's pray before we do that. Lord, we come to you as children, every one of us. All of these relationships we have in in our life, but specifically the one of father and child, is a derivative fatherhood and childhood. You are our true father. You truly protect us. You truly provide for us. You truly shepherd us. So as fathers, whether it be biological fathers, whether it be uh, fathers because of circumstance, whether it be fathers because of our age, fathers because of our status in the community, fathers because of our ordination and title in church, fathers because of what we've been elected to, I pray that we will live out these calls according to your word. And Lord, as we are all children submitting to and under the various fathers in our life, I pray that we will submit, submit well, submit in humility, submit for your purposes and for your glory, submit so that the gospel testimony will go out as we listen, as we learn, as we follow, even in difficult circumstances. For Lord, all of us, clothe us with humility. Allow your Holy Spirit to bring forth this fruit of the Spirit in our lives, but particularly in this moment. In this moment, as we come to your table, knowing that we are guests, knowing that we we receive it confidently, but we do so not because we have earned it, but because it has been earned by your Son. Convict us where we have erred this week. Convict us of those interpersonal relationships, whether they between elder and younger, or they be between peers, that we will make those things right, that you will convict us, that you will, you, will, you will cut us to the quick, even in this moment, where as that, that wine touches our tongue, we are drawn to do nothing but make things right with our brother and sister, with our father, with our mother, and with our children. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to do that and the opportunity this supper presents. In the name of your son, we pray. Amen.